Today's scripture reading is found in Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and Jesus was baptized. Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We live in a world obsessed with identity. A world obsessed with the ability of people to determine the scope and the nature of their identity. Men and women are continually inventing and claiming for themselves new types and new forms of identity. They are claiming things for themselves that do not match up with reality. And they are demanding recognition of their fantasies. Well, as much as we want to dismiss all these illusions and delusions for the madness they do represent, we need to understand the concept of taking on a new and foreign identity is central to the gospel. It's part of why this is, I think it's such a devastating thing when they do this, when they wanted to claim something for themselves like this. Like so many of the most twisted and devastating idolatries of mankind, the impulse to claim an impossible identity for oneself is a perversion of something beautiful, mysterious, and divine. Well, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the wonder of the gospel reality that the eternal creator God in the person of the Son chose to identify himself with mankind. He took on human flesh. And by claiming their identity, men can have their identities found in him. Men can have their identity bound to Christ. Well, this morning we're going to look at how Christ identified with his people by receiving the baptism of John. And how through the baptism, the disciples of Christ is identified with him and his completed work in salvation. But before we get back to our text, I invite you to join me once more in prayer. Father, this is a morning where I am reminded of the frailty of my mind, the weakness of my flesh, how easily fatigued and distracted I can become. Father, I am dependent on Your Spirit. I plead that Your Spirit would move in me and through me that I might be faithful to your word. That I might carry your word to this congregation. That people would see Christ 
see the gospel and see themselves more clearly because of this message, Father. Hide me away in the midst of this. May your word be central. The wonder of the gospel and in the impossible that you have accomplished, may that take center stage. May that be what is remembered and made beautiful. Father, only because of the promises that you have made to use your word and to bless even the feeble offerings of your people, only in that confidence do I stand here. May I be found faithful, and may Christ be glorified. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Matthew tells us in our text this morning that Jesus came to John to be baptized by him. Jesus had a purpose in going to John. This was not just some happy accidental meeting that Jesus was just walking along with a group of people, a group of friends or relatives, and just happened to come up and show up to the spot where John the Baptist was preaching. Jesus, as he walked on this earth, was the very definition of intentionality. He did everything on purpose and for a reason. He had a mission on this earth. All that he did was planned according to why he was here and what he was here to accomplish. So he came to John the Baptist to be baptized. We're going to look in a little bit here about why he wanted to be baptized. But even this action fell under his greatest purpose. The very reason that Jesus came to the earth. And Jesus tells us of that in John 6, 38-40. And there Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So the greatest goal of Jesus in coming to this earth and in everything He did while on this earth was that He would obey the will of the Father. And the will of the Father was that Jesus would lose none of whom the Father had given to the Son. See, Jesus was not just some hopeful upstart. He wasn't just someone who had a grand vision in His mind about what He hoped He could accomplish was uncertain about whether or not he could actually carry it out. He was the eternal Son of God, and he was bound and determined to obey his Father's will and to save everyone whom the Father had given to him. He came from heaven to seek and to save his people. To seek and to save the bride the Father had chosen for him. In Galatians 1, 4, and 5, Paul speaks of Jesus who gave Himself for our sins 
to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. The desire to do the will of the Father is what gave Jesus the strength in His darkest hour to carry out His great sacrifice on the cross. Remember from Luke twenty-two forty-two, we see Jesus weeping before God in the garden, saying, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. Now, I do not say this to imply that Jesus was not also motivated by love. But His strongest motivation, according to His own words, was to do the will of the Father. That Jesus found His greatest joy, His greatest motivation and purpose in obeying the will of the Father. In that unity with the Father that perfect obedience maintained. And we see that when the weight of that obedience when the knowledge of what his obedience would cost him was so great upon him that he sweat drops of blood, what gave Jesus the strength to continue was his determination to do the will of the Father. So in our passage this morning, we see Jesus coming to John with a purpose. And when we see the reaction, the response of the Father to the action of the Son, we can be certain that this too was done in obedience to the will of the Father. Well, after looking these past few weeks at the message of John the Baptist, after all the conversation and discussion we've had about what his baptism was, what it was about, and why he was offering it, does anybody see a problem with Jesus coming to John to be baptized? John baptized those who would repent of their sins. John baptized those who wanted to, who needed to, usher in a new relationship with God. The people that needed to repent of the corrupt and the decaying religion of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They needed to turn back their hearts to God, lest they, along with the religious leaders of the day, be hardened against God's Messiah and be made responsible for His blood rather than being saved by His blood. But what about Jesus? Remember, it's Jesus coming to John to be baptized. Why would Jesus, God in the flesh, need or even want this baptism? Well, at this point, John didn't even know that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel. And even still, he tried to refuse to baptize him. We read in John 1, 32-34, And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Well, according to John's own testimony, 
He did not truly know who Jesus was until after this experience. But what, what John did know about Jesus was that he was a distant relative whose birth was even more miraculous than his own. Remember, John was born to parents who weren't supposed to be able to have kids, to a mom with a closed womb who was beyond the years that she should have been having kids, and to a dad who was struck dumb for a long period of time, at this miraculous time of the angel coming and the visions. John's birth was a really big deal. Yet he knew that this Jesus had an even more marvelous birth than his own. He would have known that Jesus possessed a prodigious knowledge of Scripture, even as a child. He would have known there was something different, something powerful and special about him. In my flesh, I have a hard time not thinking that at some point John looked at his distant cousin with a little bit of annoyance about how perfect he was. I think there is a great mercy in Scripture that we know so very little about the childhood of Jesus. Well, even without knowing that Jesus was the Son of God at this moment in time, John knew that He was more important than He was. He knew that Jesus was more righteous than He was. That even though John was called by God to go ahead of the One who was coming to proclaim the arrival of the Kingdom of Heaven and the message of repentance, somehow John knew that he was in more need of his younger cousin's baptism than Jesus would be of his. Well, if you remember in this text, just a few verses earlier, we saw that John would not accept the hypocritical Pharisees and Sadducees when they came to Him because they were not worthy of His baptism. Because of the hardness of their hearts, they would not be turned back to God. They would not escape the judgment that was coming. Because they had no interest in true repentance. They only came to John to try to preserve their position and their authority. But when Jesus came to John to be baptized, again, He refused. Not because Jesus was not worthy like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but because John could see no reason why Jesus would need to be baptized. Jesus had no need to repent. He had no need to be made right with God. He had no need to be prepared or made ready for the kingdom of heaven. John didn't want to baptize Jesus because John was not worthy of Him. And his baptism was for sinners, not for the righteous. So, back to the question at hand. Why did Jesus go to John to be baptized? Well, there are two reasons I want to look at this morning that I believe explain why it was fitting for Jesus to be baptized by John to show how this would fulfill all righteousness. One, it was fitting for Christ to identify with His people and their need for repentance. And two, it was fitting for Christ to identify with John 
and to show that He would continue with the same message and fulfill the purpose of why God had sent John ahead of him with that message. So first, it was proper for John to baptize Jesus because it was the will of the Father that Jesus would lose none that He was given. In order for Jesus to lose none of those He was given, Jesus needed to identify with His people so that they, ultimately, might be identified in Him. It was in this act that He, though He knew no sin and He had no need for repentance, might be made like His brothers. So that Jesus might be able to identify with those He was going to save. So Christ was baptized to identify with His people. He took the status of His people upon Himself, and like them, He was baptized by John. It was fitting for all righteousness. Here, at the beginning of His public ministry, Jesus foreshadows His ministry's ultimate culmination. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The cross would be the ultimate expression of Christ identifying with us so that we might find our identity in Him before God. And here in our text this morning, we, we see Jesus choosing to be identified with sinners. The only sin that Jesus would ever know would be the sin of His people that He took on Himself to pay that awful price and to bear the full weight of the righteous wrath of His Father. Well, the author of Hebrews helps us understand better this dynamic of the ministry of Jesus. Read from Hebrews 2, verses 10-17. through 17. There we read, For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of His people. So part of Jesus becoming like his brothers in all things, was receiving the baptism of John for the repentance of sin. In this, he identified with his brother's need to turn away from the shadow and embrace the reality. 
to turn away from man's idea of God and religion and back to the true knowledge of the living God and God's will for mankind. In His role as Savior, Jesus would be the victorious champion of His people. Jesus would bear the burden that His people could not carry, and He would succeed where they had failed. Jesus would win victory where man had only ever known defeat. Becoming one of them, Jesus was able to bear the sin, their sin, for them. And He was able to endure the toll that was required. So in identifying with those who had accepted John's message, Jesus prepared for His own role to bear the weakness of His people and eventually to give His life as a ransom for many. Here at the beginning of His ministry, as at its close, Jesus was numbered among the transgressors and He was not ashamed to call them brothers. Well, the second reason that Jesus needed to be baptized by John is that it showed His approval of John's ministry. By indicating His solidarity with John's call to repentance in the view of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus laid the foundation for where His own ministry, His own mission would start, where He would take off where John had left. John already told his followers of the mightier one who was to come. The one whom he was unworthy to even untie his sandals. In this act of baptizing Jesus, God would reveal to John and to everyone that Jesus was the one that John had been proclaiming about. And the testimony of John would confirm the work and the message of Christ after him. Not very long after this event, Jesus would carry on this exact message of John. Shortly after Jesus' time of temptation in the wilderness that Clay will be preaching about next week, Jesus would hear of John having been arrested. And at that point, after John had been arrested and silenced, Matthew points it, tells us in chapter 4.17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you've been paying any attention over these last weeks, that, that message should sound very familiar. Those are the exact words of John the Baptist before him. The message of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven and the response from the people that that arrival demanded would be continued When John the prophet sent by God to prepare the way to make the paths straight, when he was silenced, the Messiah himself continued that all-important work of proclamation. In John 3, 28-30, we read these words from John to his disciples. You yourself bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears Him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. 
He must increase, but I must decrease. At the baptism of Jesus from John, the time for John to decrease and for Christ to increase had come. It was sort of a changing of the guard. The one who came first was giving way to the one whom he was preparing them for. John had been faithful in the task that had been given to him, but that task was always about Jesus. It was to announce the arrival of his kingdom and to prepare the people for their long-awaited king. As we discuss baptism, baptism symbolized a number of things in first century Israel. It carried an element of purification, the the washing away of impurities. The immersion in water also symbolized a disciple's commitment to be immersed in the teachings of his master. The interpretations, the worldview of the one he was submitting to. It was a physical sign that showed that the old life was ended and its priorities and beliefs were being washed away. This disciple was making a commitment to take on something new in its place, to identify with someone and something new. And of course, we see those elements in the baptism of John and even in Jesus being baptized as he identified with his people. The baptism of Jesus also served as a means of foreshadowing the redemptive task that he had been put on earth to accomplish. See, up until that point, baptism had been a means of symbolizing a new beginning, yet in Christ it would take on a fuller meaning and become a symbol of death, burial, and resurrection. For the Christian, Baptism would come to symbolize the work of God in our lives. With Christ, we have been crucified. In Christ, we have been buried. And in Christ, we have been raised again to newness of life. Baptism symbolizes our identity in Christ. Paul expounded on this reality for us in a couple of places. Colossians 2.12, he wrote, "...having been buried with Him in baptism..." in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. He wrote at Romans 6, 3-5, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. The baptism that Christians would experience, would receive, after the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, would be different than that baptism given by John. John's task was to prepare the way for the Messiah, His task was to turn the hearts of men back to God so that they might be ready and find themselves blessed instead of cursed at the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus embraced that pivotal role of John and he identified with his people by, like them, receiving 
that baptism. The Christian practice of baptism from the time of the early church up until now is a physical sign that makes a public profession of a believer's faith in Jesus and in the believer's commitment to follow Jesus' commandments. By it, the Christian claims that Jesus has died for their sins, that in Christ they have been raised again to new life in righteousness, that they have been immersed into Christ and they have committed themselves to a life of holiness and obedience and faithfulness to Christ. Or as our confession states it, baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ. To those baptized, it is a sign of their fellowship with Him in His death and resurrection, of their being grafted into Him, of remission of sins, and of submitting themselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Well, as John mentioned earlier in chapter 3, Jesus, the one who is greater than John, would baptize with the Spirit and with fire. The baptism of the Spirit gives life. It allows the blind to see. It allows the deaf to hear. It enables and brings about a response of faith and repentance of sin and trusting in the perfect righteousness of Christ alone. The baptism of the Spirit bestowed on all whom the Father has given to the Son. It is the mechanism by which all of those who were given to Jesus would be saved. He would lose not one. But the baptism of fire was a baptism of judgment. Those who rejected John's plea to repent of their man-made religion, of their self-achieved righteousness, received the baptism of fire. Because they rejected John? No. Because of their unfaithfulness, they rejected the Son of God, and together with the nation of Israel, they called for the blood of the Messiah, the Son of God, to fall upon their heads and the heads of their children. That very generation would come to understand the gravity of their error when the Son of God came in glory and power in the judgment of the nation some 40 years later. Well, I understand it might seem a little bit confusing to speak of these different baptisms, yet I think it will be helpful for us moving forward to keep track of the difference between John's baptism of water, Jesus' baptism of spirit and fire, and the ordinance of baptism that Christians celebrate even today. So I will attempt just another short summary that I think might be helpful to the end. John's baptism was a unique call on the nation of Israel to repent of its idolatry, to be made ready for the arrival of the Messiah and escape the judgment that was soon to come. Jesus' baptism speaks of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit unto salvation or the hardening unto destruction. And the Christian baptism that we still practice symbolizes the believer's entrance into the new covenant and their being united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection.
Well, though John's impulse was to reject Jesus' plea or his, his request to be baptized, at the word of the Lord, he, he consented and he obeyed. John didn't have to fully understand why to obey. We would all do, do better. We would all do well to follow that example of John. There are times when the commandments of God do not make sense to us. Times where we can't see what will happen on the other side. Yet, I promise you, it is always safer to obey than to resist and act in our own wisdom. So even though John didn't understand, he baptized Jesus. And Matthew tells us in verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Him. The descending of the Spirit of God recalls well-known messianic prophecies. In Isaiah 11.2 we read, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And again Isaiah prophesied in chapter 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my Spirit upon Him, and He will bring forth justice to the nations. Well, if we notice, Matthew does not tell us that the great crowds and everyone around saw the Spirit descend on Jesus as a dove. It tells us that Jesus saw the Spirit coming down as a dove. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus at His baptism was for the joy of the Son and the joy of the Father. Remember, this, this event did not change Jesus' status as some believe. There are some who want to teach that Jesus became the Son of God at His baptism, or that something fundamentally changed in Him at this time. But He had always been the Son of God. This event did not give Him new powers or new rights. In pouring out His Spirit upon Jesus, God the Father was expressing His eternal delight in His Son, and for His Son, and with His Son. This is a, a moment where the triune God was sharing great pleasure within His persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God has always been happy and satisfied in Himself with the three distinct persons of the Godhead. Jesus remembered the eternal joy and satisfaction that He had felt and experienced with the Father and the Spirit before He took on flesh, before He came in to identify with His people in creation. But that, that incarnation changed something of that experience for a time. In John 17, 4-6, through we see Jesus praying to the Father about His desire once again to experience what had always been His in eternity. And Jesus says, I glorified You on earth, 
having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before with you, before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. We would do well to remember that the great sacrifice of Jesus was not simply that he gave his life or even that he endured the wrath for sin, though those may be the greatest parts of it. His sacrifice also included emptying himself and leaving behind the perfect glory and communion that he had always enjoyed with the Father. He did so to come to humanity in the flesh that He might identify with us and become a perfect substitute. All of this was according to the will of the Father. But here, at the outset of His public ministry, Jesus felt the love of the Father in the person of the Holy Spirit. Then He heard, and John heard, and now we all hear as we read Matthew's Gospel, the voice of the Father proclaiming His perfect satisfaction in His Son. God the Father proclaiming that this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What more perfect way could there be for Jesus to begin His public ministry than for Him to showcase His being made like His brothers in all things? And even then, for that moment, He was able to enjoy as He had always enjoyed the completely satisfying love of the Father in the person of the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful picture of the Father's love for the Son. The Son's love for the Father. Of God's love for God. While only the Son became became man, The Incarnation, nevertheless, reveals the whole Trinity. At Jesus' baptism, the Father and the Spirit were also present. Each member of the Trinity was an integral part of this great commissioning of Jesus as He began His public ministry on this earth. Jesus was baptized according to the will of the Father. The Holy Spirit came down in order to manifest the delight of the Father to the Son. And God the Father proclaimed His pleasure in Jesus. This is but a glimpse of the perfect union within the Godhead that we who are in Christ will spend in eternity worshiping and adoring. Of course, there are those who do not believe that God is one in three persons. There are those who reject the doctrine of the Trinity. They will point out that the word Trinity is not present in the pages of Scripture. To that, I would answer, and so can you. You're right. The Word is not in Scripture. However, Scripture does clearly show God revealing Himself in three persons. God interacting with us in three persons. And even those three persons interacting with each other. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit cannot be three separate gods because God has clearly represented Himself always as one. 
But they also cannot be merely aspects of God. They cannot be different modes or forms that God takes in history. Because we see the three persons of God simultaneously acting time and again throughout Scripture. And nowhere is that that interaction more clear than than in the incarnation of the Son of God in the Gospel being planned, achieved, and applied to the salvation of men. Each person of the Godhead intimately active through it all. I want to take some time to explore the cost of Jesus choosing to identify with man and the cost of man finding his identity in Christ. As we do, we'll consider a couple passages. Philippians 2, 5-8 through and Mark 8, 34-9-1. Starting in Philippians 2. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What did, what did it mean for Jesus to identify with His people? He had to humble Himself. He had to take on humanity and its weakness. He had to embrace suffering. He had to leave behind the glory He had always known as eternal God. The sweet and constant intimacy and communion with the Father and the Spirit that He had always known now became something He had to seek out, strive after, discipline Himself to take time to, for the Word and in prayer. And ultimately, it would cause Him to have to suffer as in obedience the wrath of the Father on that cruel cross came upon Him. So it, it cost our Savior dearly when He chose in obedience with the will of the Father, to identify with us. I don't know that we are ever going to fully appreciate what that cost Him. Well, what about the cost of man finding his identity in Christ? Is there a cost associated with being found in Christ? Well, certainly we gain much more than we could lose. Yet, beloved, we are told to consider the cost of discipleship before we follow Jesus, lest we begin the journey and fall away when it becomes more difficult than was expected. Read in Mark 8, 34-9-1. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, beloved, it is costly to follow Jesus. Any so-called gospel proclamation that makes no claim of any cost, of anything you, to do, any, any burden that goes along with following Christ, isn't a full gospel call. Jesus didn't shy from making that very clear. This isn't even the strongest language that Jesus said. If you do not hate mother or father and follow me, you are not worthy of me. He had very strong language about what it meant to follow him, about what we should know of the cost of following him. To follow him meant the disciple had to deny himself. That the disciple had to take up his cross and follow. Now, beloved, that isn't some empty platitude. That isn't just, oh, there's going to be something hard in your life and you don't always get what you want and that's your cross to bear. No, the cross was an excruciating torture device. It was the most efficient way the Romans had to torture people. To to hang somebody up on a tree as a warning for all of what it meant to defy the Romans. They were good at killing. They knew how to hurt. They knew how to keep people alive long enough to suffer the hurt. It's not a platitude. To carry the cross really means that the disciple of Christ should follow with the expectation that it will cost them everything, even their lives. Isn't there an easier way? In a world that hated and killed our Lord, the only way to escape persecution, to escape the war with the powers of this earth, is to deny the Son of God and the people of God. To deny Him by our words, by our actions. For anyone who makes a profession of allegiance to Christ, it would mean to live as though you are ashamed of Christ. To live before an unbelieving world as though you as well were unbelieving. But, But how did Jesus say that He would respond to those who were ashamed of Him? To those who by their words and their actions proved that they were ashamed of Him? said that he would be ashamed of them when he came in power. When men are ashamed of Christ, they live as though they do not know Christ. Beloved, take heed if you find yourselves in that pattern, if you live like you do not know Christ. Because when Christ is ashamed of men, he acts as though he does not know them. And what does that mean? It means that they will face the fullness of His wrath rather than the sweet gentleness 
of his grace. There are real costs in a new gospel identity. Be that the cost of Christ choosing to identify with man or man being identified in Christ. Yet there are also rewards. So what did Christ gain out of this bargain? What did Christ gain with all the costs that He had to pay? Paul continued in that Philippian passage in chapter 2, 9-11. through 11, Therefore, God is highly exalted. That highly exalted is, is a super exaltation. He has super highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Christ is hyper, super exalted because of His humbling Himself and His obedience and taking on the identity of His people. Well, what does the disciple of Christ gain? more than we could ever truly know or imagine or adequately appreciate. In Christ, we trade death for newness of life. We exchange our shame for exaltation with Christ. We trade our sin for His righteousness, eternal damnation for everlasting glory, the corruption of mortality for divinity. And also as a reward, if we view this biblically, in this life we get to suffer for righteousness rather than suffering for our failures and inabilities. Beloved, if suffer we must, then doing so in faithful obedience to our Lord is so much better than suffering for your own sin and failures. The Christian's whole existence is wound up in his identity being found in Christ. All right, our whole existence is bound with our being our lives being hid with Christ on high. The only way that's even fathomable is because the Son of God chose to come and first identify with us. Because He chose to obey the voice of His Father and to take on humility upon Himself and enter into creation, to take on human flesh, to suffer at the hands of those who owed Him His complete allegiance and worship. As you go about your lives... Meditate on the wonder of God choosing to be identified with you. When you weigh the cost of living for Him, consider the cost of Him dying for you. When you weigh the cost of living for Him, consider well the cost of being ashamed of Him. Beloved, it is only going to become more costly 
to be identified with Christ. The world is growing increasingly cold to God's truth and to the demands of Christ. So I plead with you, determine now, before persecution comes, determine now that you will not be ashamed of Christ. Determine now that you will be faithful no matter what the cost. Determine now so that you will place and keep your identity in Christ. Because He became like us so that we might become like Him. Father, these things are weighty. Father, let us, let us have those, those words seared on our, on our hearts and our minds that to live as though we are ashamed of You would bring about the Son being ashamed of us. Father, let us never be ashamed of the Gospel. Let us never be ashamed of our Lord Ashamed of his willingness to be humbled. Ashamed of his love, of his perfect obedience. Ashamed of his calling out to us to trust in him and believe. Let us never be ashamed of what the world will call weakness, what the world will call foolishness, and of what the world will hate us for. Father, let us embrace Christ, embrace identity in Him, embrace the Gospel, embrace the hope that is ours because of Him. Father, make us faithful. And as we are faithful to Christ, may our lives scream out a hope that is beyond the understanding of the world so that they cannot help but ask. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.